lot of times, uh, almost every Sunday here at Menem, we talk about Jesus' teachings, what, what he was speaking of. Today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk just about Jesus himself today. We're starting this new, new series called, Who is This Man? Uh, this is a profound work by one of my favorite guys, John Ortberg. All of our small groups are working through this material. Can you raise your hand for me? I want to get some perspective. Can you raise your hand if you're in a small group right now that's working through Who is This Man? Would you raise your hand? Okay, a decent chunk of you. That's good. That's very cool. Um, there's so much good stuff here. And uh, we're going to be working our way through this, and John Orberg has provided just great outlines and a ton of material for us to deal with. Now, today, as I just mentioned, after, after the service today, we're going to go upstairs and we're going we're to have a, a class that's going to talk about our church, and part of the ta talk upstairs is going to be about our denomination. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about our denomination. Um, a lot of folks think we're a non-denominational church. And in many ways, I, I, I think we kind of operate that way, but we're part of a movement called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, and there's a very clear distinctive in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, and it, it came out of the teaching of A.B. Simpson, uh, its founder, the founder of the movement, and an experience he had, a very real experience he had with God. Here's, here's how Simpson put it in two words. It's a distinctive of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Jesus only. Jesus only. Jesus above all other things that nothing else matters. That all things pale in comparison to. Sometimes it's called, in theological terms, the preeminence of Christ. However, if you grew up in the Western world, if you grew up in the world that you and I have all grown up in, sometimes because we're so close to the preeminence of Christ, we don't see it anymore, we don't realize it anymore, how preeminent Jesus is in our world in very real ways. And so what I want to do is show you that as we start into this series. Next week um, is uh, spring break for uh, my wife, who is a school nurse, and, and my daughter, Caroline. And we're going to go down to Florida for a couple days in the middle of the week. Uh, my wife found these incredible tickets. You, you can fly to Florida for like one way. We got, I got a one-way ticket to Florida, to which somebody in the first service said amen when they heard it was a one-way ticket. Um, those first service people are rough. Um, we go down and uh, visit with my brother. It's sort of like 48 bucks, right? Isn't that crazy? And so Joan was looking at airports that we could fly out of. And I don't know if you guys have ever flown out of, uh, there's this local airport that Joan and I love, the, the Allentown Bethlehem Airport. You ever flown out of Allentown Bethlehem? Oh, isn't it fantastic? I mean, it's like going to a bus depot, you know? You just kind of park your car. I've literally walked in and there's nobody in the security line. They're all just standing around looking at you, you know? And, you just walk through it right through. It's fantastic. Now, let me ask you a question regarding the preeminence of Jesus, regarding the concept of Jesus only. Why is there a city called Bethlehem in the state of Pennsylvania? Well, because there was once a baby born in a podunk town two millennia ago, into, born into a stable full of animals and dung in a town called Bethlehem. Now, if you leave from my house in Long Valley and you drive out to, uh, to Bethlehem, you're going to drive through a couple of towns right before you get to Bethlehem. Anybody know some of the names of those towns? Nazareth and Emmaus. On my way to Bethlehem, I'm going to drive through Nazareth and Emmaus. 
Why is there a town called Emmaus in Pennsylvania? Well, because this baby born in a stable in a town called Bethlehem grew up to be a man named Jesus who would, who would one day appear to a couple of his followers in a well-known story in the Bible on a road to a city in Israel called Emmaus. Now, when I leave my house, I'm going to pull out of my driveway in Long Valley, which is actually part of Washington Township, New Jersey. This is very confusing to me. I don't know why every town in New Jersey has to have like three names, right? And if being from Washington Township is confusing to you and you're a New Jersey person, it's because there are six towns in New Jersey named Washington. Did you know that? I went to Rutgers and I kept running into people, where are you from? Well, I'm from Washington. You are? I don't know you. Um, Washington, this, this name of Washington, it's kind of preeminent here, but Washington himself, his life was impacted by a man named Jesus. Uh, in, in 1779, in reply to a petition uh, from a delegation, Washington said this. this is a true quote. There's a lot of, I can be honest, you know, a lot of times religion builds up around the founding fathers, but this is an actual quote of Washington to this delegation. You would do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, above all, above all, preeminently, above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These, this will make you a greater and happier people than you are. See, here's the truth. And we miss it because we drive through towns and don't think. You can't look at a map. You can't drive around our towns without being reminded of this man. His impact is so profound that his birth remains the most widely celebrated birthday in the world. Whose birth is second? Nobody knows. Fascinatingly enough, in the world we live in today, everybody is doing brand promotion now trying to establish a brand, to build a brand. And lots of that is done by establishing and building a, a, a presence, a logo. Yet this Jesus, this simple Middle Eastern carpenter, the instrument upon which he was killed, the cross, this cross marks more graves on the face of the earth than any other symbol. This cross adorns more jewelry than any other work of art. This cross has been tattooed onto more body parts, no picture here, <laughs> than any other symbol you can find. Do you have any idea what second? This man's influence. Yeah, I, like I, I feel like I've come to know him, so I'm pretty proud of him. This man's influence, it just builds and it grows, and so often it builds and grows despite the flawed followers and leaders that, that, that point towards him. Some of you might know the name of Eugene Peterson. John Ortberg in his work has this great story of, uh, of Peterson. Uh, his translation of the Bible is called the Message Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's kind of like a modern paraphrase of the Bible. And so Peterson's kind of a big guy in Christendom. He, he grew up in this Christian home, and, and when he got into second grade, he started to get picked on by a bully. And he remembers the bully's name. His bu the bully's name was Garrison John. And so every time he would go to school, Garrison John would be waiting for him on the path to school, and he would beat him up. Most afternoons, he would catch him and beat him up. Now, here's, here's what um, Eugene uh, said. 
And Jim Peterson said, he said, somehow he became aware that I was a Christian, and so during my beating, he would also often refer to me as a Christian sissy. My mother told me that this was the way of Christians in the world. I would, I would just have to deal with it, uh, the persecution, and then I should pray for him. And so one day, something, when he attacked me this one day on my way to school, something in me just snapped, and I grabbed Garrison, and to my surprise, and to his, I was stronger than he was. And I wrestled him to the ground, and I sat on his arms, and I hit him in the face with my fist, and it felt good. <laughs> blood, spurted from, blood spurted from his nose. It was a lovely crimson in the snow. This is the guy that wrote the Bible. And he said, he goes, I said, say uncle. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. More blood. But then my Christian training asserted itself, and I said, say I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> and he wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. Jesus' influence endures in spite of those who oppose him, but even in spite of those like me who think we're trying to follow him. He gets bigger every year. A fascinating article came out from, um, from uh, it was in the New York Post, I think, this week, um, from Tim Keller, who's a prominent um, theologian and preacher in New York City, and he was talking about um, how Christianity is exploding right now amongst 20-somethings in New York City. Yale historian uh, Jaroslav Pelikan put it this way, quote, regardless of what anybody might think personally or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with one sort of super magnet to pull out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? So you have to ask yourself, I don't know where you all are this morning. Some of you are here because you've known Jesus for years, and others of you, like there's heel marks in the parking lot from, you know, you're getting dragged in. But you have to ask yourself, forget about religion or, or if Jesus was as he claimed to be, that he was the incarnate son of God, divine. Forget all of that just for a moment. And just consider Jesus as a person, just as a man, as a human being, born, lived, and died. Maybe put it this way, as I think about it often. Perhaps if you were coming here from outer space, you were an alien life form from somewhere else, and you landed on this planet, on this earth, it would not take you too long before you would start to see the shadow cast by this one life. And you would begin to ask yourself a profound question. Who is this man? The world you and I live in today has been so profoundly impacted by this guy, by this one life, but we don't realize it. See, the ancient world that Jesus was born into was very different than the world that you and I have inherited. His world was a world full of cruelty and barbarity, changed because Jesus saw things in a different way. He believed in a kingdom that wasn't of this world, and he pointed towards it, that that kingdom might come here as it is in heaven. John Ortberg, in the work, has this great quote. He said, he goes, too often we argue about Christianity instead of just marveling about Jesus. And so for the next few minutes and over these next few weeks, I, I just want to marvel 
at Jesus. I just want to marvel at him. Here's something interesting to begin with. I've had a lot of you over the years come up to me and say, why do you think Jesus came when he did? I mean, there was no radio, no TV, no newspapers, no internet. Why would God send him then? Imagine how much more impact. Imagine how many more followers he would have if God sent him now. The 24-hour news cycle, man, he'd be on all the time. But the Bible teaches in a couple of places that Jesus came at just the appointed time, that that was exactly when he was supposed to come. And I think if you deconstruct what my friends are saying, what I've wondered sometimes, here's really what's at the root of that. It's this. The reality is the likelihood of Jesus actually having any impact in our world, given his life story, is ridiculous. It makes no sense. Jesus never held any office. He never had any title. Jesus never had any money. Jesus never had a home. Jesus never traveled at all. Jesus never wrote, wrote a book. Jesus never read a book. And in his lifetime, he never had one important follower. A couple of ragtag, uneducated fishermen. But 2,000 years later, you came out here this morning trying to find a seat in this room. It is impossible to think of our world apart from Jesus. So, so what I want to do is go through with you, if, and stick with me if you can, I want to go through with you the impact of this one life. So here's the first thing I want you to think about. Jesus gave the world its, its most influential movement. You, me, us, the church. Imagine if you would, uh, uh, for just a minute, a world with no church. No, no, no Notre Dame, no Sistine Chapel. I've, I've, when I take my kids to Marsan, I've done this a few times. Uh, if you drive through, especially when you get to the area by the green, you ever look up? Here's what you see as you get to the green in Marstown. If you just start looking corner after corner after corner after corner, if you'll stare down South Street, right here in our own town, all you'll see is steeple after steeple after steeple dominating the skyline. Imagine on Morristown with no church. But it's not just about buildings. Without Jesus, there are no house churches in China right now. There's no Mother Teresa. There's no Desmond Tutu. There's no Martin Luther. There's no Martin Luther King. They all followed this Jesus. There is no Peter. There's no Paul. There's no Timothy. There's no Augustine, no Aquinas. They all followed Jesus. But here's something even more fascinating about this movement that Jesus uh, birthed. It was so revolutionary in the ancient world, we don't understand it now, but it was completely counterintuitive in the ancient world because in the ancient world, you had nations, you had ruling families, you had tribal religions, you had philosophical schools of thought. But the church was none of those things. It was like nothing the ancient world had ever seen. We're used to it. But the idea of the church was once new and dramatic. Here's how Paul described it in trying to explain what this community would be like that Jesus was starting. He said, here in our community, in these churches, there will be no Gentile nor Jew. There's not going to be circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians or Scythians. They didn't like the Scythians. There's not going to be slaves or free. 
all of that will go away. We won't think that way. This is a new way of thinking. We're going to forget all of those things, and we're going to be together. This will be a different place. People of every gender, of every nature, of every nationality. Where before the church was there a movement that sought to include people, human beings of every gender and status and wealth and background to be loved and transformed? So you look around Marstown, I look around Marstown, it seems commonplace, it never existed before. It was Jesus' idea. It was his idea, here's why, because the Bible teaches that he created us and he knew what it was that was needed most desperately for people. We were made to be in this kind of inclusive community. The world is still trying to destruct the church, still trying to destruct inclusive community and create division. Jesus understood that people needed this church. There's a pretty famous researcher, um, wrote some pretty famous books called Robert Putnam. He found that being connected to other people is more important than you could possibly understand. Here's what he wrote. This is so cool. School performance, public health, crime rates, clinical depression, tax compliance, philanthropy, race relations, community development, census returns, teen suicide, economic productivity, campaign finance, even simple human happiness are all demonstrably affected by how and whether we connect with family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. That opportunity did not exist until the church showed up on the scene and said, we're forgetting all of the things that separate us and we're uniting as one in Christ. Putnam would go on to say that it doesn't matter what your health habits are. It's a fascinating study. You could have the worst diet, not exercise at all. You could be a physical mess. But if you will get out of isolation and get yourself into some kind of a community, some kind of a small group, you will cut your odds of dying this year in half. To which Steve Fisher has now put a new axiom on his small group brochure, join a small group or die. So I, I told you, we're going to have a Market Street Mission graduation here in a couple weeks. Some of the guys that are part of our, our community of faith, right? It doesn't matter where you're from, what you're struggling with, what your past is. These are revolutionary ideas. We're just used to them. We're going to have the Market Street graduation here in a couple of weeks. All of these guys go through the 12-step recovery program. Have you heard of the 12-step recovery program? That came from a group called the Oxford Group, which a couple, about 100 years ago, said about trying to recapture the practice of the early practices of Jesus and his followers, teaching people to admit they're powerless over sin, to turn their life over to God, to do a ruthless moral inventory, to make amends. Does any of this sound familiar? Do you see, no Jesus, no community like that, millions of people dead in affliction instead of being alive in community. I'm not saying there wouldn't be community at all, but here's the deal. As a matter of historical reality, inclusive community all started with Jesus Christ. He changed the way we relate one to another. And so you have to wonder, who is this guy? Jesus changed the way we think about history. 
In our day, we expect progress. Uh, anytime there's a political thing going on, they always do a poll that asks, do you believe, are you, Reagan asked it right back in the 80s, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And we continue to poll all the time, you know, what do you think to your children? Do you expect your children to have a better life than you do? And we all just kind of assume that that's what everybody thinks, but that was not the way the ancients thought. This is a new idea. In the ancient world, people thought that history revolved through cycles, that, that history was just an endless series of ups and downs, existence and repetition. And so in antiquity, events were dated by rulers because life was all just about power and rulers. So when one ruler died, you started the, the next series of events. You can actually see this in the Bible. The Bible actually makes reference to it. When Luke discusses Jesus' birth, he says, in those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, and how's he dated? He says, it was taken while, Quir Quir I can never say Quirinius right, right? While Quirinius was governor of Syria. But here's the thing that would happen. Over time, every Caesar, the power, their grip on the human, nation, human imagination would fail, and it would just be replaced by somebody else. Another cycle would start. But something happened. Around the 6th century, there was a monk that began to propose a new calendar based not on the founding of Rome or Egypt, but on the birth of this Jesus, this simple carpenter. And he didn't do it, this is so fascinating, he didn't do it for chronological convenience. He didn't do it just so we had something to write on our checks. He was doing it because it was a statement that the world was not caught in these cycles, but that the world was moving somewhere. That history had meaning and it was going somewhere. Leading, that Jesus was the hinge on which history sat and that the date of his birth was when things changed and it was moving towards a date when he would return. Now, if you lived at that time and you got a poor fisherman and a, come, a, a, poor, a, a poor Messiah and a couple of uneducated fishermen, you would have never bet that Jesus would have any lasting influence. Yet, Jesus had this one follower, John, and John, when trying to describe who Jesus was, John says, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you know all of the, all of the stories about, you know, all of the, the, the folks that, that were in power in Jesus' day, but, but right in the face of it, John says, listen, this Jesus, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. You would never have bet that when John penned those words, the reality of every king that would ever live going forward would now be measured against this Jesus. Every ruler that's ever reigned since this point in time, his reign is dated in light of Jesus' life. Take your cell phone out. Can I? Teenagers, put your cell phone away. Parents, take your cell phone out. Pull it out for a moment. And if you just take a look at it and flip the button, push the button on, what do I have? First thing that greets me. Sunday, March 19th. Right there, it reminds you every time you pull yourself or not that, that Jesus Christ has become this hinge on which all things sit. You see, Nero, the great persecutor of the early church, he died in the year of our Lord, 68. 
Napoleon, he died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Stalin, he died in the year of our Lord, 1953. And it's not just every ruler whose life will be measured in the shadow of Jesus Christ. Because you too one day will die. And no matter what you thought of this man, no matter what you did with him in this lifetime, your remains for all eternity will be covered by a marker that will relate your entire existence back to the birth of this one man. Who is this guy? Jesus changed the way we think about humanity and the way we express compassion one to another. In ancient Greece and Rome, and I have to tell you, increasingly in the culture we exist in now, the beautiful, the strong, the wealthy, they were admired. The weak and the marginal were not valued. There was a first century Roman thinker, you heard this in your small groups, um, it's such a disturbing quote. A first century Roman thinker named Seneca, he said this, is written as a historical fact. We drown children at birth who are weak and abnormal. This was not shocking in, in the first century. In the ancient world, a child would be left to die if it was sick, if it was weak, if, if there was any kind of imperfection to it. In the first century, a child would be left to die, and, and still in this century, even if it was the wrong gender. Any guess on what gender that was? Girls were often left to die. It's said that at the time of Jesus' birth, there were about 1.4 boys living for every one girl that lived. Just how it was. But there was this little group of followers of this man named Jesus who, who would look back and remember that Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He somehow valued children in a culture that had no value, thought of them as possessions. There was this Jesus that this little group of people followed, and they remembered him saying, you know, unless you change, you become like a child. And so, so this little band of followers, they began to take in these unwanted children. They began a practice that we still today refer to as God-parenting, and they would take care of children when their parents died. And then the church began to become affiliated by, with orphanages, not affiliated, but birthing the whole movement. It became so otherworldly. There's a book you can buy today called When Children Became people, because they were never thought of that way until Jesus, the birth of childhood in early Christianity. If you were a woman and your husband died in the first century, you were fined by Rome because you were seen as a drag on society. But there was this group of, of followers of this man, of, of this, this kind of three-year teaching ministry rabbi. There was a follower of this man, and they remembered that when he was dying on the cross, he looked down at one of his followers, and he said, listen, I need you to take care of my mother. And, it, and these followers started to say, well, maybe we need to start caring about the widows and the, and the orphans. There were two ec epidemics in the Roman world Think about this. Think about this how, in terms of the, how many houses you have in your street, your, your neighbors, where a quarter to a third of the population of the cities were being wiped out by disease. There was one his, history writer that said it created such a panic that at the first onslaught of the disease, people were taking those afflicted and literally throwing them out because they, they, the potential of, of the contagious nature of the disease. They were being buried long before they were dead. 
But there was this little group of people that said, you know, we follow this man who used to go and hang out with the leopards, and he said that we should take care of the blind and the deaf and the mute. And as they were cast into the streets, these Christians would come and they would care for them. They'd bring them home to their house. And in the fourth century, the first hospital was founded by Benedict, a guy who followed Jesus. And, and, and by the sixth century, hospitals began to be birthed out of these little monasteries of Jesus' followers. Why? Because they remembered this teaching that Jesus said, I'm telling you, truly, I'm telling you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done for me. And it would roll through history at the Geneva Convention. An organization began to alleviate human suffering. What did it choose as its symbol? A flag with a red cross on it. Now it's known as the Red Cross. And so whenever you hear about the Red Cross or Easter Seals or Goodwill or the Salvation Army or Habitat for Humanity, you see the touch of Jesus. People who weren't perfect in the ancient world were viewed, viewed as disposable. Jesus saw them as bearers of divine glory. If you're a parent of a special needs kid, can you let that soak in for a minute? This is not to say that there wouldn't be compassion in the world without Christianity. And here's the truth. Those of us who follow Jesus often fall so short of this, maybe increasingly so. But there was a, there's a philosopher named Mark Nelson. He said this, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay. This probably have its roots in the movement of Jesus, who is this man. Jesus' movement changed the way education is seen and done. When Jesus was alive, education was reserved for boys from wealthy homes. Certainly not for girls. Certainly not for the poor. Certainly not for those who were slaves. But Jesus said, go out into the world and teach them all about me. And so they did this, men and women, slave and free. And by about the fourth century, again, as Jesus' followers began to live these principles out in their communities, for many years, these monastic communities were the only place for the preservation, not just of the Bible, but all of the classical texts of the ancient world. You and I still have these texts because of the followers of this Jesus who said Go and teach them. And, and so then the church, because they believed in what he said, they began to build schools. The first university in the world, the University of Paris, is built around the 12th centuries by followers of Jesus. And then Oxford, soon after, was built. You know what Oxford's motto is? Dominus Illuminatio Mea, the Lord is my light. Here's the reality. Most universities of renown, 92% of the universities in the United States started before the Civil War were founded in the name of Jesus. Who is this man? Taken right out of the handbook of a university you might be familiar with. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is 
to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Anybody know what school that came from? Harvard. And then the Reformation comes along and, and it becomes important that everybody actually be able to get the scriptures and read the scriptures and, and, and their birth amongst the follower of Jesus, a desire for people to be able to read the Bible in their own language and the move for universal literacy began. There was no push for universal literacy in the ancient world. Jesus' followers literally in many languages created the language, created alphabets in order that they might translate the Bible into those languages. Alfred North Whitehead. See, the church, the church, the church is always trying to screw up Jesus' movement. We as his, his followers, oftentimes we get in the way. And at one point there was this big debate where the church was trying to keep science out. But Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, when he was asked what it made it possible for the study of science to emerge, because the study of science didn't always exist, here's what he said. He goes, it's the medieval insistence on the rationality of God because if you believe creation was made by a rational God, it will lead to fundamentally different assumptions than if you start with the idea that it's just a random accident. Jesus changed art. Dante, Bach, who signed all of his works to the glory of God, Mozart, Gregorian chants, modern music, you know the notes and the scales? Do you know who invented that? the medieval church so that they could translate worship music across the, the geography. No Sistine Chapel without Jesus. Israel at the time, in the world that Jesus was born into, they had a ban against creating images of God, trying to, to live by the law of the, the New Testament about idolatry. So, so Israel produced virtually no visual art. And so what you might expect was that the ascendancy of Jesus would mean the diminishment of art. But to the contrary, again, Yale Professor Pelican notes this, quote, the victory of Jesus over the gods of Greece and Rome in the 4th century did not, as both friend and fro might have expected, bring about the demise of religious art. On the contrary, it was responsible over the next 15 centuries for a massive and magnificent outpouring of creativity that is probably without parallel in the entire history of art. Who is this man? Jesus' movement changed political theory. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, well, here's what you should do. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. The scriptures say, Mark, as he writes this, says, this reply completely amazed them. Why? Because Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world. And this was revolutionary. It was assumed prior to that that religion was the prerogative of the ruler. If you rule, you rule religion. Onto the scene comes this Jesus. And for the first time, he goes, look, give to Caesar. There's a separation here between church and state. Do you know that's Jesus' idea? Do you know what Jesus also knows that we forget sometimes? That the church usually follows Jesus worse when it has political power than when it doesn't. Jesus understood that. Jesus changed the way we think about human rights and dignity. 
out of the Declaration of Independence. You saw this in your small groups. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, we read that and go, of course, that makes common sense, but here's the problem. These truths, those truths were not self-evident to Caesar or Nero or Hitler. Where did this idea come from? Where did the idea, you ever have a friend that goes, well, well, you know, I, I, I'm not into organized religion. I just believe in a God of love. Well, where did the idea of a God of love come from? Because prior to the birth of Jesus, nobody was walking around going, oh, I just find myself so in love with Zeus. Thor, I just want to cuddle up. See, Jesus introduced for the first time in humanity the idea of a God who so loved the world. Jesus introduced the idea of a father desperately longing to be reunited with his son and his daughter, wanting them only to come home. This has such implications when you understand it, right? Paul, in trying to explain it, he writes to this church in Galatia. He goes, look, in this community, understanding who this God is now, he's different than anything that we see around us. Here there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is not slave nor free. There is not male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. This is, folks, listen to this. In the history of humanity, this is the first expression of egalitarianism. The first expression that every life, no matter what, has, has, has dignity and purpose. The abolition of slavery, the, the equality of women, all movements overwhelm, overwhelmingly started by followers of Jesus. Jesus had, he had crazy ideas. They don't make a lot of sense sometimes. We still struggle with them. He, he, he taught uh, the, the love of enemies. This is not natural. I struggle with it. I do what the Romans did. There was a, a, a monograph in, uh, in ancient Rome. It said, Help your friends and hurt your enemies. But there was this one guy that when he walked around town, he would say, yeah, you know, don't do that. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek and let them slap you on that one. If somebody comes alongside you and tells you to carry their bag for a mile, you should ask them if it's okay if you carry it too. Love your enemy. These weren't just words for Jesus. We're going to be gathering in, in, in memoriam of his crucifixion in a couple of weeks on a Good Friday. If you remember when Jesus sat on the cross, he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And so these followers, they believed this stuff. And they start dying for this man. Nero, the, the early persecutor of the church, he, he would take these followers of Jesus, he would cover them in pitch, and he would use them as human torches for gladiator games. But their response was not what our response is. Their response was not to dream of revenge or demand their rights or start a revolution. They began to pray for Nero and for courage. How do you stop this kind of thing? 
regardless of what you think about Jesus. This is, this is different. There, there's a historian named Hannah Arendt. She's not a Christian by, by her own profession. She's the first woman ever appointed to full professorship at Princeton. She said this, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, he changed everything. In the most famous speech of the 20th century, I got to see Ortberg talk about this. I've been reading all of his stuff and watching him talk on this concept and just stealing all kinds of his ideas. But he talked about Martin Luther King. And when Martin Luther King gave the great speech of the 20th century there in front of the, the Lincoln Memorial, this Martin Luther King, he was a preacher of the gospel of this man named Jesus. And, and he was reading from his prepared remarks for his script, and all of a sudden he just had a vision kind of come over him, and he gets moved and he stops, and he's, he begins to quote out of the, the biblical book Amos, from the prophet Amos, and he starts to say things like, the day will come when justice will roll like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And the crowd began to sense that something different was happening there all of a sudden, that things were moving from... from from political to spiritual, and they began to roar, scream back at him, say it, preach it. And he got caught up in it, and he, he couldn't go back to his prepared remarks, and Mahalia Jackson, who was in the choir behind him, piped up and said, Martin, tell him about the dream. Martin, tell him about the dream. And he, he did. He said, well, I've had this dream. I had a dream. It's about a world that's not yet, but I follow this guy who says one day it'll be. I have a dream about a world where one day my little children won't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day my daughter will be valued as highly as my son's. I have a dream that my aunt who had cerebral palsy would be valued one day just as highly as some Hollywood starlet. See, I follow this man that started this movement that says there's no longer male or female or slave or free or black or white. It's not a secular dream. It wasn't natural. It was inspired by the one that Martin Luther King followed. It was the dream of Jesus, whose life echoes across time and space into this place. And so sure, there's a question about who is this man, but there's a deeper question that has to be answered. What are you going to do with him? 